Hello everybody, this is News of the World and it is number 50, the 50th Hooray! edition. Yes, Mark, you are excited. Hooray! That's my 50th edition greeting. Hooray! Oh. <laughs> yeah, it took yes. us more than a year, so we haven't been regularly posting every week, but mm. we did it every week we could. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And, and from some unlikely locations, that's, that's how we roll. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And uh, including, what was it? Colombia, you've been mm -hmm. in... Uh, Georgia? In Georgia, uh, yeah, it was pretty far away. Yeah, uh, yeah. We didn't talk when you were in Egypt, Egypt but we talked about it. And uh, yeah. multiple times you've been in Brussels, Portugal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, did, we did manage one from Egypt, by the way. We did. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. right. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. I forgot so about that. We've done some... We've, we're pioneers. Wait. <laughs> Are we Somehow. pioneers? We've know. done some things, and then we haven't done other things. <laughs> and I guess I want to start by saying hello to everybody who uh, was at Republica last week, because so many people uh, came up to me and said hi and bought me a drink, and, and it was really, uh, really nice. Uh, yeah, was it say. many? Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> probably five or six. That's many. At least, and that's more than, uh, yeah, that's always nice. But uh, yeah, I thought it was quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not everybody who knew you and who would have bought you a drink has actually met you, so I wouldn't that's say true. that's a bad ratio. That's, that's true. I thought it was a very nice uh, number, <laughs> and, uh, and it, was, it was really nice to see people in person, and that they could tell me you know, things like what they like or don't like about the show, and that's always useful as well, you know, direct feedback. What did they say? Oh, uh, there was uh, generally people, maybe it's something that I uh, create or, or elicit, but people don't say bad things in front of me. <laughs> they only say nice <laughs> things. They only say nice things. Um, I mean, unless they tell me, like, I look thin, but that has nothing to do with news of the world. Um, <laughs> but someone did that. But yeah. Um, but generally people say, you know, they like the program. It's the only English language program that they listen to, which is uh, very significant to me. I mean, that I could be, that we could be the only English language program someone listens to in their week. That's pretty cool. Um, some people actually find the news interesting. That's good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, I don't know. Apparently, our, our thing, our back and forth is uh, something they, they don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Not so much feedback uh, also in the comments on our news sources section, but uh, nevertheless, we're going to continue to do this. Um, yeah. Still yeah. expecting this to build up something in the long run. Yeah, but... So far, uh, we can be happier with the feedback, so we keep going. Yes, to the news. And since we've been away for, I think, about two weeks on this one, right, Tim? Um, I've got a list of items that include stuff we've missed the last two weeks. So, so some of this is uh, old news in, in some circles, but I think there are also topics that I don't want to not mention because they involve so many people's lives and, and countries uh, hanging in the balance. So let's start with the biggest one. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest disasters uh, in, in this year and, and perhaps of the last few years. Uh, the Bangladesh garment factory collapse. Uh, this was actually on April 24th. And by now, many people have seen images. In terms of international news, it has gotten a lot of coverage, uh, whereas some subjects maybe wouldn't make it you know, to the mainstream. Uh, we're talking about 1,100 people who died. It was a nine-story uh, garment factory that collapsed. 
And actually, a hundred people are still missing. And there have been some amazing. I mean, one particular story was of a survivor, and I think it was more than a week later uh, that they found her. Um, there are also some just n- not happy stories, but amazing stories. I don't know if you've seen this image of the. Um, there's two people who are embracing. They're hugging, and they've been found buried in the in the rubble. They're they're dead, unfortunately. Mm. But the image is is amazing. It's just. And and this picture has been going around as well on the on the internet. Um, I was just watching a report uh, before we started recording from uh, Bangladesh about how that space is now cleared out, and you know they're trying to figure out where are these missing people uh, and, and what to do from now on. Which brings a a idea now, a proposal, mostly from European clothing companies. We're talking about I think Zara is one of them. Um, they're talking about making an agreement with Bangladesh. Of course, they should have had this long time ago, but it's about building safety codes, that there will be money dedicated to ensuring that buildings are um, properly checked Mm -hmm. and inspected and that something like this wouldn't happen in the future. And uh, surprisingly, I mean, this causes some uh, resistance. For example, I think Gap... Uh, and, and some other companies in the United States, although no company is really of a country anymore, but all right, um, we'll divide it between Europe and America. They're saying they don't want to participate in this agreement, or at least not as it stands. Uh, they want to do something about it. And I, I, there are different reasons why they might say this. I mean, one is, you know, they want to know if if how we're going to enforce it, make sure this is real. And I think there's something else going on here. Um, and that is... If you start enforcing uh, regulations and rules, like labor rules, you could actually um, change the, the reasons that companies put themselves in Bangladesh. Now, I'm saying something really evil right now, but this is the logic of a lot of this global economy. Um, if Bangladesh starts to agree to these tougher restrictions, and, and not restrictions, but rules, then actually labor becomes more expensive. Could. And then, ironically or oddly enough, uh, these companies might might not want to be in Bangladesh. So that's where this gets really weird because now these companies are saying, "Oh, this is terrible. You know, we can't let this happen again. So we're going to spend a little more money on safety, which, of course, you should always do. But now they're going to spend the money on safety, and the risk, one of the risks, is that things get more expensive, and then suddenly these very companies will look around and go, "Hmm." China doesn't have these regulations, uh, or maybe Vietnam. So this is the irony. Uh, you know, th- I think this accident, tragedy as it, as it is, also presents you with this, the irony of the world economic system and, and cheap is best. And, yeah, and, and where everything can, can move from country to country easily within uh, a few years. I mean, the textile industry used to be a stronghold in, in Europe, and this has almost completely disappeared. There are very few companies who produce um, these garments, textiles in in Europe anymore. I mean, there are some, you know, who focus on quality and, and especially yeah. bring up these issues on, you know, fair payment and stuff and quality as, uh, and so on. But most of the stuff is actually coming from Asia. And I think Bangladesh, that's the strongest part of the economy, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I, yeah, 
I've done a few stories over the years on the garment workers in Bangladesh because a, a friend of mine is a documentary maker there. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard from him on this one. I know he's probably very busy. But yeah, yeah. For Europe, I think it's like Bangladesh is one of the major providers. Uh, so it's somewhere around 60%, 70%. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but it's, it's high. It's higher than what they send to the U.S. The U.S. has other sources, especially China. This incident, I mean, this hasn't been the first incident. Uh, and there have been also building collapses, probably not at this scale. I mean, this is by far yeah. the biggest incident, but um, other things have happened, uh, burning places and so on. Yes. Uh, occasionally people are dying and in general the working situation is not that uh, good uh, in general. But this is just on a scale that's unbelievable. I mean, that 1,100 people can die, you know, in a building collapse. That means that this building was... Unstable is probably not the <laughs> right <laughs> uh, way to yeah. describe it. I mean, this is a ca- catastrophic um, situation to begin with. I mean, that means that basically nothing is really spent on security at all. Or as little as possible, yeah. yeah. I, I think I have a picture here of the building before it collapsed. I mean, it's not, it's not like unbelievably huge. It's just a big factory. Yeah. So I get the impression that it was also extremely crowded. Um, and again, that goes back to, you know, no rules or very little rules. In these documentaries I've seen, uh, including one called The Garment Girls of Bangladesh, produced about four or five years ago, they were focused on, you know, the story of women who are the majority of the workers producing garments there. And they were looking into, like, uh, even age restrictions. Like, you know, you're not supposed to be, I think it's 18, it might be 16. And the game is, I mean, I guess it's like those Foxconn stories that were alleged um, that when the inspectors are coming, they know. So they do things like they they send the young, the underage people home, mm-hmm. uh, and they hide if it's building restrictions. If they try and hide the the little violations, and they can pay somebody. So, I mean, there are some rules, but I think these rules obviously are mostly just for show. Mm. Um, and and just to go back to that thing about how costs change, I want to tell you a, a, a brief story that applies to this situation. Years and years ago, I was really into the topic of where ships go to get demolished, deconstructed. Um, because it was big news that I think France was going to send an aircraft carrier to India where it was going to be broken down and there's all kinds of toxic materials, but that's okay because that's what this part of India does. Um, it, it, it turns out that within a few years after this story getting international attention, they introduced new rules. Hard, uh, you have to wear hard hats or helmets. You had to wear gloves, a respirator. And word was at that time that these shipping companies were now going to start sending their stuff to Bangladesh because Bangladesh didn't have rules about helmets and respirators and gloves and it was going to be a lot cheaper there. So the, you know, the, the ridiculous effect is when people finally step up and start having standards, a lot of these companies just move again. And, and the only hope in this situation is that now at least Zada has a commitment here in the public you know, space saying we're going to be more careful, we're going to spend money on safety – And that should mean they're going to stay in Bangladesh as well. So this could have, I mean, for future, uh, the quality of life in, in Bangladesh, this, this could have some positive effect. But it also has that ironic side effect where they might be less work. I mean, it's ridiculous to say it, but I'm, I'm saying it. Yeah. And that's 
I mean, the pro the question is, how can you solve that problem? I mean, this could only be done on an, some kind of international level where there is no real level where to act on because there's no yeah. influence and, and, and power to actually enforce general regulations for all these countries because also because these countries are longing for that business. I mean, yeah. Yeah, they'll waive whatever rules. Yes. They'll waive tax, uh, even tax. And, uh, and so does Bangladesh. Yes. Uh, I think one thing that could make a difference, but it's going to, you know, we're still far away from that. And it's a bit like what we do uh, in terms of media, um, is that if people start to care more than now, because we have some, to care where their clothes come from, to look at labels, and when you look at a label, to know what it means. How is that country in terms of clothes? And I think we've started down that road, but it's still such a small you know, bite out of the big pie. I mean, people still prefer these giant, and it's not even the fault of uh, it being big, but these giant stores that do, you know, massive amounts of business, very cheap, cheaper is better. And I think the problem with cheaper is better, well, we see it here. You know, when we only say, I only want what's cheap, these are the effects, some of the effects. Yes. Um, you and know, you some can, things, you, you, yeah. you can tell where you can buy that stuff that is being produced there. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can. And so we might be heading, you know, even further down that road. I mean, that's the least we can do for all these people that have died is sort of honor their memory by caring more for, for other people who work in this industry. I mean, for other things like food, there have been these fair trade programs. Um, probably there's fair trade yeah. also on that level. Do there you know is. of any organizations who are dedicated to textiles? Uh, I mean, there is a label, I've seen it in the United States a lot, fair trade cotton, uh, because the cotton industry is a, is a big one. Um, but fair trade clothing is is definitely present. Um, I think here in the Netherlands, you know these Oxfam stores? Oh yeah, right, Oxfam yeah. is doing it. Yeah, we don't really have them in the Netherlands so much, but I've seen them in Belgium a lot. And uh, maybe in Germany they exist? Oh yes, they do. Yeah. That's what Oxfam. But, I, you know, that's not a powerful, I mean, in terms of scale, Uh, label, but it's a it's an option and it's a start. Um, bigger companies, I'm not so sure at the moment. Yeah, there's no major powerful uh, fair trade clothing company that I know of. Yeah. Okay, let's yeah. Uh, let's move on to yeah. Uh, Libya. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, everybody has been sort of looking yet not looking at Libya over the past year, trying to see what's going to happen and. The last week or more have involved a lot of protests and a lot of uh, government buildings being, if not protested, attacked in some way in, in Libya. Um, and this is a response to a new policy coming from the government, which basically says, if you worked for Gaddafi, you can't work here. <laughs> oh. Yeah, or at least you can't work in the new government, I should say. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is one of those old problems. I mean, after Iraq, uh, when the you know Saddam Hussein collapsed, they they fired the military. And I mean, that's not exactly the same thing, but it's one of those issues. Like, where you know, what are you going to do when you have a country where some people supported a eh, bad government, let's say, to put it lightly, um, but now that government is gone. But there are lots of people that that had jobs. Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to ban them? Uh, that's tricky. I mean, that's a problem. So a lot of people are upset about this policy. They're, they're saying that it's very much the policy of what they call the more religious government. Um, and, and they make it seem like it's a religious versus non-religious thing. I, I don't know if that's true. That's just how the media is putting it. 
Um, and as a result, it's it's getting a lot of attention as as a chaotic situation, as uh, potential for a lot more violence. And I've even seen today in um, at least Bloomberg uh, News reported that you know the U.S. is putting its uh, military in Germany on alert for a rapid response, I guess, to rescue uh, people who would need to be evacuated. Basically, they seem to be saying uh, they're afraid that that um, attacks are going to occur on embassies and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if such a thing would happen, but it, it is alarming. You have these militias in Libya that are doing a lot of these uh, surrounding of, of government buildings, and then they leave when pro-government protesters come. But these militias in Libya have long been a concern of of not just mine, but a lot of people, you know, too many armed groups with too many different ideas about what they should be doing, what the government should be doing. And, um, it's a problem, you know, for, for the future of Libya and for people in Libya who aren't in a militia. <laughs> yeah. And it's really a, a big question. What do you do with the old loyals, you know, because yeah. I mean, okay, I can understand this, you know, oh, you're sort of, misaligned and you're not really you know you have been doing the right things and we can't guarantee you're going to follow up on our new ideas mm -hmm. uh, how to run this country but the, the other problem is these are usually well trained well informed well connected well networked people you know mm. who, who knew their stuff just because they did it for such a long time and now you put them out of service what shall they do you know they're not going to open up a bakery they're not you know, just sit at home and say like, oh, yeah, fine. You know, then I'm doing nothing now. Mm. They are going to, you know, look for a job that is sort of close to what they've done before because that's what they are most trained in. Yeah. And if they can't take part in any kind of official activity, <laughs> then they're probably going to join some kind of Inofficial activity, which is a real mm -hmm. problem, especially when it comes to things like military. Yeah. Because that's And what you don't want. It would be interesting if there were a way, I think there is a way, um, where you speak with people who used to work for the government uh, and find out, uh, are they, you know, hating what's happened and, and plotting, or at least, I mean, they probably won't tell you they're plotting, but some way to check if people are really like, able to you know if they've had a change in mentality i mean maybe they didn't even love the last government it was just a job um there should be some way to by speaking with people by researching them a bit about them to figure out you know i mean yeah some people who worked for the government are literally criminals i mean it depends on what job they had yeah uh, and usually it's at very high levels uh, but there um, are on the other hand there were also the people who were running the whole infrastructure <laughs> yeah. and that's you know if That was really a problem in Iraq, you know. Yeah. This early decision to, you know, let everybody go who had anything to do with Saddam Hussein destabilized the country even more because yeah. you were just, you know, kicking the elite into the ass. And even if you are not so much into the elite, the <laughs> elite is, you know, the, these are the chosen ones <laughs> if you want, um, that actually have the knowledge and yes. incentive to run a country and running a country is not always fun you know it's so that yeah. everybody wants to do it or can do it yeah what it, what it makes me curious about is how much does the libyan government ask or study other cases because there have been lots of countries that have had such a transition 
many successful, many I'm sure are still having trouble. And I wonder how much they ask and look around and, and get advice or seek advice. Or are they just completely making this up on their own? I mean, that's, that's my fear, that they just you know, don't want to hear from anybody else, don't want to learn from any other experiences, and are just going to make this up according to their politics and, and whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, looking at the world, you always get the feeling that nobody really wants to learn anything from the past. Everybody has to make the same mistakes all over again. Mm, true. I do see that, yeah, yeah, but maybe maybe somebody in uh, in Libya knows that, or maybe somebody listening has a job where they go and they visit. I mean, maybe somebody's listening to our program. Yeah, exactly. This will turn the country around. And and such such initiatives do exist. Uh, I know a guy he has never been on my program, but he used to go to Tunisia and I think Egypt. I know Tunisia for sure. After even after the the revolution, which is not a you know complete. Uh, shift in in who works for the government, but you know at least leadership fell. And his one of his jobs was to sort of try anyway to help uh, the Tunisian government to advise them. And he was, I think, even paid by the Dutch government to do this kind of work. It was like a pro democracy uh, initiative. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if if the Tunisian government was listening, but the option was there. The person was in the country trying. Um, and I wonder if in Libya that sort of thing exists, you know, and, and do they get listened to? I don't know. That's something maybe for somebody to, uh, to tell about if they know. Okay, let's uh, focus on other problems. Uh, is it more a problem with Syria or is it more a problem with the U.S.? <laughs> so that there, there are red lines somewhere <laughs> and somebody might have crossed them. Yeah, oh. there's a lot of line drawing. Um, I, actually, we should mention now... Uh, I was working with Syrians since we've been away. Uh, I was in Turkey, and we haven't done a show since then. Um, I was teaching Syrian uh, young people. They want to be reporters. They are reporters, but they don't have much training. And uh, so I got a big dose of what life is like in in, uh, rebel-controlled or, or, well, in Syria these days, cities that are under siege. And um, the subject of the United States comes up a lot. Um, You know, what... Many people want to know what should the United States do? What should the international community do? And as we, as we know, they're not doing that much, although there is a lot of money. I mean, from the U.S. alone, uh, the statistic is 650 million non-military money has been sent to, uh, to Syria. And in a way, I saw some of that because these guys that I was helping... I mean, I was being paid to teach them by an organization that I think at some point gets their money from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and they themselves were getting cameras to do their reporting and getting a little bit of equipment. So, you know, this is maybe this is part of non-military aid. I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm sure a lot of that is food and water, hopefully. Um, you know, you have 3.5 million people that have been displaced somehow, moved from their home. I mean, I read that there's a refugee camp in Jordan that is now the fifth largest city in Jordan. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's, that's weird. I mean, that's how big this is. And so the last few weeks, and, and it's not going to go away anytime soon, there's this conversation. And it's the U.S. government, and I think also with you know, NATO-involved uh, Turkey, um, talking about chemical weapons and saying, we're not going to get involved in the Syrian conflict, but if chemical weapons are used by the government... That is the part where we can't take it anymore. And they don't say it, but they seem to be saying, if that happens, then we'll get involved, you know, somehow bombing or troops or whatever you do. And uh, there have been a lot of articles. Uh, I linked to one in The New Yorker, which is one of the 
very detailed, but one of the better ones, um, where they talk about this red line. Obama calls it a red line. And um, I mean, the response in the United States that I've been hearing is just they don't want to they don't want to be involved. They don't want to know. They don't barely want to see the images. Uh, But the U.S. government is saying if there's chemical weapons, then there's a problem. Meanwhile, I mean, by 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 they, you mean the the U.S. public. Uh, the U.S. public does not want, I mean, you can't, it's like, in terms of the majority, they're very not get involved right now. Yeah, I think they're Ever fed, since the fed up with, with uh, U.S. conflicts in this that region. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, the Syrians that I got to hang out with who um, identify themselves as, as rebels and against the government, they also say, we don't want the U.S. to get involved. But... What they also say is, we don't want the U.S. supporting this government either. So it's like, you know, if you're not going to get involved, then really don't. I mean, don't support this government. Uh, but they're very suspicious as well of the U.S. and, and what they do. Uh, so what, is what is their debate. relationship to Russia? Which, who? I mean, you talk to people who are, you know, saying like they don't want the U.S. to be involved. What is their position on Russia? It would be the same. But to be honest, based on how these conversations go, people don't think about Russia very often. Although uh, Russia is probably the, the biggest supporter right. of the government right now. Yeah, but it's not as... Um, you know, the US is really such a... Maybe because of the Iraq conflicts, but it seems like every person from Syria has an opinion about the US. And even though Russia is heavily involved, or at least on the diplomatic level and... and power level on the street i don't think syrians are thinking so much about russia um but it did not come up in in my seven days with these people um what they very clearly would be against is any country that supports uh assad and uh and and that goes as well with uh iran and and these sort of paramilitaries that are now being coming over different borders to to work for assad they're against all of it um, and and they're very pro whoever wants to at least well here's one thing I, I learned and this is of interest um, Al Qaeda yeah uh, you when you hear Al Qaeda you think terrorist group and there's plenty of <laughs> evidence that they are um, in the context of Syria there are people who are joining Al Qaeda or at least agreeing to join Al Qaeda for now only based on one reason. Al-Qaeda is against Assad. So if someone from Al-Qaeda shows up and offers you some weapons and some phones, you say, yay, I'm with Al-Qaeda, let's fight Assad. You ask them about terrorism and, and big missions against America or the government of Pakistan, they don't have any opinion on that stuff. They're not interested. What they want is any means necessary to get rid of their government. So if it's an Al-Qaeda flag, they'll, they'll, they'll go with them too. And so that was one thing I learned, you know, not so much about Russia at all, But when it comes to, you know, get rid of this government and uh, allies that would help get rid of them, like there, there's a certain amount of, I yeah, can do that. That's strange. So they're, in a way, they are ready to follow anybody who is sort of leading them to the path of fighting Assad. But on the other hand, they don't really want the U.S. to be involved. I think the U.S. gets this very special uh, treatment. Uh, yeah, yeah. Based on history. Based on history. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that also explains why it's so difficult for Obama to make any 
progress in how to deal with this situation because he can't really do nothing, uh, but he can't really do anything as well. Yeah, I would agree to that. It's a terrible job to have the U.S. presidency, uh, oh, yeah. and and it's 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 a <laughs> annoying position. I mean, they've done it to themselves, I guess, throughout history. But you know, it's it's really annoying to be the United States because <laughs> yeah. And then then he, I mean, we were talking about this red line that was he what he said about um, the usage of weapons, and I think what he really meant by that is if there's some kind of obvious threat that goes. Uh, toward Israel, mm. then we're going to move. I mean, there's no, I think there's no discussion that, so, let's imagine, I don't really think this is happening, but it could happen. Who knows what, what, what happens next in Syria? You know, there, there's a rocket flying with um, gas and landing on Israel ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, the Israelis were probably not going to wait for the US, you know, Right. The attack is going to be imminent and it's going to be strong and merciless. Um, but I think the U.S. will be involved next day somehow Could. on some level. I, there's no way that they're not going to protect Israel at that point. I think we're at the point, I mean, diplomatically, they'll speak that way, exactly what you're saying. But I don't think they'll actually have to do anything. I think that Israel is um, way ahead on that front. I mean, they've already been doing, they've done several... They have been doing uh, attacks, right. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't think Israel would say much about wanting American help. But they would get a lot of, of course, um, support, probably, I mean, weapons-wise, if they need some more, they have plenty. And uh, and diplomatic support, you would get a lot at that point, not just from the U.S. Uh, a lot of people would say, like, oh, they're under attack. But it's it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, Israel is is kind of yeah, I mean, but, but this red line message was not for the, the U.S. public and was not so much for the press. It was more uh, towards Assad regime. Yeah. So that they could be totally clear that they will meet destruction the moment, you know, <laughs> they're for, turning against Israel. For me, I didn't see it as, as an Israel thing. Um, from what you're saying, I didn't see it that way. Uh, I saw it as <laughs> there's always this attempt to have this is war or civil war. You use rockets and guns and they blow up and they kill people and that's okay. <laughs> that's the, the, that's the, the communication I'm hearing. Then there's this other thing. If you use, well, on the far end, if you use nuclear, that's messed up. That is no good. We have to stop you there. Now, in the middle, you have chemical. Oh, if you use chemical, you're bad. That's unacceptable. That's, like, not fair. So, so <laughs> seriously, this is the kind of communication I'm hearing. So it's not even about Israel. It's, it's more about, like, yeah, I, what you, that's, how that's humane. That's the communication I'm hearing. But I tell you yeah. that's more about Israel than anything else. Because hmm. in the end, they don't care. You know, I mean, it's still a bloody war going on and people are being killed and it doesn't really matter how they are killed. Oh, I think it matters how. I mean, oddly enough, like if it's a genocide, boom, you know, international community in general says, wait a minute, it's not just a war, it's a genocide. And that's where we draw this line, <laughs> another colored line, a yeah. red line maybe. <laughs> so many lines. It's, we really do have this ridiculous in some way system of like, this kind of war is okay. That kind of war, not okay. Um, yeah, it's so, like, but there is yeah. proof now. At least some people claim to have proof. Turkey does. 
you know, that mm -hmm. chemical weapons have been used. I have read, so, yeah. Yeah. Now they're saying like, yeah, it might have been used, but nobody knows who sent it, you know, <laughs> who used it. Yeah. Um, so what should they do? There, they, there are no options on the table. That's the problem, you know. Oh, they I, don't know who to support. Oh, I, I think you, you, I mean, what I would like, despite whatever risk people think there is, you, you have to pull the plug. Whatever you're giving to this Assad regime, he's done. He's so done. Uh, and, and he probably should, should be in jail. I mean, he has, what he has done in terms of an attack on his own country is, I've seen the images, I've watched the videos, it's, it's incredible. And I'm very influenced by the people that I met. Um, but these were not rebel fighters. You know, these were students of different subjects like science and math who all of a sudden have been picking up cameras. They don't want guns. They do hang out with the people with guns. And um, for me, it's whatever you do as the international community, you stop supporting Assad. Get it out of your head that he is an option. He's not. Uh, and after that, you're going to have to deal with whatever happens. Uh, yeah, he, you know. he is not an option. That's no. for sure. But the question is, who is the option? Oh, you know, who yeah, is the groups to support? You, you, you allow. I mean, you support uh, uh, the restabilization of a nation. You stick to the basics. You try and help uh, infrastructure, and you hope for the best. You hope that people vote for some kind of uh, government and not one that would harm someone else. Uh, but I don't think you can say what you want in this situation. You can only say what you don't want. <laughs> and and what you definitely do not want is Assad. I mean, it's 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 just unacceptable. It, it like Gaddafi should have been for a very long time, and finally, you know, people woke up to the fact that this guy needed to go as well. Yeah. Okay. So what's happening now in the U.S.? What do you think? Uh. So there's the government and there's the people. Which one do you want? <laughs> the government. Uh, I think the government is trying to talk tough, look tough, as always, but they actually don't want to do anything. Um, I think they don't, like, they're afraid of the associations that will come if you, if you support the rebels and then, like, what I just told you, you know, Al-Qaeda's kind of with the rebels, kind of, sort of, whether mm. the rebels want them or not. Uh, so the U.S. can't say, oh, I'm with the rebels too. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh. Uh, and it's not just because of Al-Qaeda. It's, it's, it's all the other implications and this theory that the rebels are some of them are evil which of course some of them are evil uh you might be too if you lived under what they've lived i think the u.s is trying to look tough but really not sure what to do and not willing to do anything and there's not a lot of public support that does matter uh, people really don't want the government to get involved if he did and i say he as the leader of the government mm -hmm. if obama did uh, i think he would lose a lot of support because unfortunately people don't feel very strongly about human rights or getting involved in in a, a conflict no matter how terrible it is, um, because it's not in their home country. There's a big wave of uh, isolationism that I think has hit, uh, especially when it comes to wars. Mm -hmm. And I mean, historically, this, this does happen, uh, especially after any large war that the country gets involved in. And uh, I think it's happening again. Now, meantime, yeah, the U.S. government is talking a strong talk. They've also got Turkey, which is a key ally and you know, they very much, I think they very much need Turkey just as Turkey needs them. And uh, this is right on their doorstep. I mean, we had this last week 
uh, a car bomb in the south. And I've said many times, you know, it's, it's neat how in Istanbul it was very safe, even though I'm working with Syrians, no one's attacking them. But here on the border with Syria, we hear, yeah, there, there are terrorist activity related to Syria. So Turkey's, you know, worried and, and would, would also act. Um, so in that sense, the U.S. is tied to this and, and will be involved if anything happens internationally. Okay. Let's uh, turn to another place of conflict and tension <laughs> that yeah. is um, not as bad as Syria, but always seems to have the same potential. Yeah. That is I'm Pakistan. Really I'm very fascinated by um, the political culture in Pakistan. And we just had elections this week. Um, I'll cut right to the, the chase. Uh, Nawaz Sharif, uh, who was actually kicked out as president 14 years ago by a military coup led by Pervez Musharraf. And more, boy, times have changed. Uh, when Sharif was kicked out, people were like happy. Uh, the story goes, they, it was like a day of celebration and everybody gave candy to each other as like this day of goodbye to corruption. And of course now Musharraf himself is, I believe, going to stand trial for corruption. Um, he came back to the country to try and be a politician, but I, I hear that's not gone very well. No. And Sharif <laughs> wins this election. He beats out Imran Khan, who is a cricket star, and people thought that he was going to do extremely well. He himself is very upset about this result uh, as he lost. He's saying corruption, corruption. If anybody follows um, Pakistani issues on Twitter, on Facebook, you would have seen a huge uh, cry out for a boycott. A lot of young people did not participate saying no matter what happens, the whole election system, whether you're a Khan guy or a Sharif guy, uh, is, is rigged. Mm. And uh, so there's a lot of talk about how bad this election has been. Sharif himself, there he is back as president 14 years later. And I really don't understand. <laughs> I mean, it's, look, we have this all over the world. You know, we have a government, people get sick of them. They vote for the number two or number three party. And then 10 years later, they go back to that party and they go, all right, you, you're actually better than these guys. And then they forget, you forget the past. And usually it's just a different person. But now they've gone back even to the same person under the same idea that there wouldn't be corruption. They've just returned to a very corrupt person. And people say he's matured, which I find amazing because he's like 60 years old. But he's matured. <laughs> oh, know. yeah. That's, that's, I, I would call it the Berlusconi effect. <laughs> um, Berlusconi got more mature. Yeah. And he's always returning again and, and, and again and again. You know. I learned a lot these years. Yeah. yeah. So, and then of course, you know, the big issues in Pakistan, many people know it's, it's security, it's this battle against what is a very strong Taliban and terrorist element in the country. And everybody wants to know, you know, is this guy going to be strong? The government that just left was actually a civilian government for the first time since the Musharraf uh, coup. And they were accused of all kinds of corruption as well and just being lame. <laughs> That's a very official term, just lame. So this is just one of those cases of people getting sick and tired of corruption and then either, of course, not participating in the, in the process, which I can't blame them, or voting for the previously corrupt guy, hoping that they've matured. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. We have Sharif as president in Pakistan. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of accusations of uh, fraud, but I don't think anything will come of it because even in previous elections, we've had a lot of discussion about fraud and, and votes disappearing and appearing. So it's, um, 
it is democracy, but it is a democracy full of problems. Oh, one interesting thing I want to see what happens. It's said that Sharif really uh, is into the idea of peace with India and cooperation with India. And for me, this is significant as a non-Pakistani person, as a non-Indian. It sounds like he's better than most when it comes to getting along with India. I hope that's true. I don't know if it's just talk. Hmm. Might be helpful. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Out of all your problems, like, let's not have one with India. How about that? Yeah, but even the more advanced countries in terms of democratic system stability and so on sometimes run into problems and another country that had elections were yeah. Iceland yeah and uh, Iceland uh, yeah there were actually two things we need to talk about uh, one being the new constitution not coming through finally although it was worked out by many people from the ground up, from the people themselves, on the internet, they were working on this new constitution. Everybody sort of expected it to take place some day or the other. But it didn't because it was turned down by the parliament in the final vote. Hmm. And uh, we were very close to report about this. Uh, but the news broke just you know one day before our last show. So we had no real chance of uh, getting into this. But now the normal uh, elections also followed. Yeah, and it was a turn, I mean, the summary, at least, in the media focuses on the fact that it went, the the voting went towards center-right. After the whole bank crisis and and the financial collapse, people voted more center-left, and uh, you you had this social democrat left-green coalition um, with someone who I thought was a very interesting prime minister. Uh, I don't I always forget her name. Uh, but now they voted against her. She, they fell from 50% of the vote to 25. So they really lost half of mm-hmm. what, they, what they had. Um, it, it's a huge loss. I had an interesting experience during Republica. Uh, unexpectedly, I went to dinner and I was sitting next to um, the leader of the Pirate Party, Brigitte Jonsdatter, and uh, she won Uh, they did well, the Pirate Party, for their first, I think, their first appearance in the elections. They won three seats in Parliament. And it was a really interesting conversation. She was being very critical of uh, the center-left parties that had made big promises about, like, basically, free money if you vote for them uh, and and lots of financial benefits because people are still in such money problems and there's so many, you know, I think they owe money now to the IMF because the IMF helped them uh, bail out of their situation. And as we know, you know, people get very annoyed at these these bailout uh, scenarios. I know this from Portugal because it weighs so heavily on you, the extra costs and, you know, people are still struggling to pay the mortgage. She spoke a lot about that. And uh, it's an interesting situation where, like, the sort of mainstreamish left falls, but these other parties, like the Pirate Party, there's even another one, I forget what it's called, uh, uh, Rainbow. Well, there's a lot of nice names for these left parties. And they also did relatively well in this election, even though the big amount of voting went towards center-right. Very interesting lady. She gave a talk at Republica that I missed, which I think was about this whole story, really. Um... And, uh, yeah, it's just a shame about the Constitution. I don't know what happens to it now. I mean, I guess for now that issue might be dead. Um, And that whole wave of hope that I think we had about 
New Iceland, uh, I think, has not, it's not gone, but I think it's relaxed a little bit here because we see that Iceland is not just going to be experimenting with really progressive ideas. It's also going to shift, you know, left, right, and, and beyond. So she's now, she has been re-elected to the parliament now yeah. as head of the Pirate Party before she was um, part of a citizen movement, not really a party. Mm -hmm. So she has some kind of tradition of walking the alternative path in Icelandic politics and one of the mo most well-known persons, I'd say, from Iceland, uh, at least for our uh, bubble, you know, because she, she's been involved with WikiLeaks. She's been involved yeah. uh, and behind this uh, Icelandic modern media initiative, the IMI, and so on. So it's a very progressive uh, person and you know, it's interesting to see that they have, um, you know, reached that point that they made uh, actually the Pirate Party show up in the Icelandic parliament. But on the other hand, you really wonder wh where this is heading. Because in a way, I'm surprised because after this big fall down of, of Iceland, they somehow managed to go through this crisis, uh, go get back on a path of recovery, and that by not following the path that everybody else is uh, taking in Europe. I'm not really too much into this, but, you know, they they have been developing different methods. And I'd love we could, you know, talk about this more sometime, or maybe you should, yeah. you should do an interview about this, actually, yeah. in your program. It would be very interesting to see. Yeah, I was so busy enjoying dinner that we didn't do an interview at that point. But uh, <laughs> thankfully, um, she will be coming to uh, camp to Ohm here in the Netherlands. And mm -hmm. for sure, uh, if not before then, for sure she and I will sit down at Ohm. So that's, that's something to look forward to, although we still have a few months. I'm also curious about this talk. I know the, the talk she gave at Republica, there was a quote or two on Twitter, and one of them was just simple. Uh, you know, Iceland could have been an innovative participatory democracy. And so, you know, clearly this talk gave the, the ups and the downs and the, the sort of both failures and successes of what's been happening in Iceland these these years. But yeah, you're right. I would love to do an interview uh, to talk about what is, yeah, a really interesting case. So what's left on our list? Uh, one, since we're so good with elections and uh, <laughs> so many are interesting, I saw this yesterday, fresh off the Twitter presses, Uh, our friend Peter Sund, known for Flatter and the Pirate Bay Once Upon a Time, uh, he's going to run for European Parliament in 2014 as a representative uh, or a hopeful representative from the Finnish Pirate Party. Party. And I, I had to look twice because I know, that he's, I know him as a Swede, but he's actually of Finnish origin. And uh, I'm not sure why Finland instead of Sweden, uh, but it looks like that's what's going to happen. Maybe it's strategic. Well, it's probably strategic. Yeah, I don't know. His, uh, yeah, strategic. I don't know if this is somehow related. I mean, he has been sentenced to jail. And this, for some reason, he managed to extend the period. He is walking freely on planet Earth. But eventually, you know, everybody's expecting him to be in jail. I don't mm -hmm. know if, you know... He sort of plans to keep this going and postpone it by whatever activity. 
until he gets finally elected to European Parliament for Finland, <laughs> if he could still be, you know, jail. I don't know. This is just pure speculation. I haven't heard about this uh, until you uh, told me just before the show. And I really wonder what's going on here. I mean, also, he has been a backer of the Swedish Green Party for a long time. He wasn't hmm. really into this pirate movement itself. That mm -hmm. might be directly related to, you know, many, many things, even personal things. I don't know why. Uh, might be that the Finnish Pirate Party has taken a different route. Interesting to see he's doing it. Also, I mean, Sweden already has two Pirate Party representatives. Yes. So this might also be an effort to sort of galvanize the potential Pirate Party votes in Finland, mm -hmm. um, whereas Sweden already seems to have their 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 percentage, a good start, especially on the European level. So um, I don't know. It could could strengthen the amount of Pirate Party representatives in uh, in European Parliament. Now, uh, tell me something, Tim. The Pirate Party in Germany doesn't have anybody at the EU level uh, yet, right? It's more no. of a, it's been a no, national. No, no. They, they, uh, at the last elections, they were capable of uh, getting 2% of the vote, which was then a huge success. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, next is the uh, national parliament elections in September in Germany, where, you know, there's still a chance they might get over the 5% hurdle here. Although I'd say that's a very open race. Because mm -hmm. the party party hasn't done very well in Germany publicly um, mm -hmm. uh, in the last year. There was a fast rise, but then it was also it seems like a fast fall. Yes, but it was mostly <laughs> self-made. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the <laughs> internet. <laughs> yeah, they haven't really been very. Um, I don't know how to put it. the The way they approached the public, and especially how things were running internally. I mean, there's a strong run now for what the real policy is. The newness newness of everything has worn off, and now it's. Uh, The actual fight of, okay, now we, we agreed that we disagree with everybody else, but what do we actually agree on? And uh, this is sort of culminating now in an internal party war between people who are in favor of the so-called permanent um, membership meeting, uh, which means that they want to use uh, a system like liquid feedback, for instance, to mm -hmm. you know sort of have a permanently discuss and permanently decide on things instead of, you know, having delegates and, and meeting uh, at a weekend somewhere in Germany and it's only those who actually make it to that place who can actually decide on what the politics are. Um, yeah, the last weekend there was this last meeting and this decision again didn't make it hmm. to the um, two-third vote, although it was super close, like 23 people were missing uh, in the final vote to, to get it through. So I think in the end they are on that path. It's just they're not going to make it for the next election with that decision. And I don't really know what the uh, outcome of all this is going to be, but yeah, many people are very critical of what's going on there. Yeah. Well, I, I admire, you know, their, I mean, you don't just cheer and go, this is great because it's the Pirate Party. Like, I admire being critical of your own 
project, even what is new. <laughs> but in a way, yeah, this can also destroy it before it has a chance to grow. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, oh, yeah. So we'll keep an eye out on uh, on Peter. Actually, you know, uh, uh, barring any kind of jail thing, which I think he's still appealing and will be able to appeal for some time, chances are we might see him at uh, camp also this summer. So it could be a, uh, <laughs> a very interesting uh, interview-related uh, summer at, at camp if, if Peter shows up. That usually tends to happen. Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll see. By relating to camp, you mean the OM Festival... OHM yes. in the Netherlands, which is yes. not actually called camp. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I still call it camp. I'm like, since my childhood, everything <laughs> is a camp. I'll be in a tent, so it's a <laughs> camp. But yeah, that that I'm actually going to be there. I guess it's a little early to be announcing these things, but I will be there, and I'm I'm apparently standing on a stage and holding a microphone. Okay, so we close by adding uh, another entry to our list of news sources. Yeah. What do we have? I went for a traditional one, a big one, and uh, one that maybe not everybody hears from so often. Uh, I read Nature Magazine. This is like a commercial. I read mm -hmm. Nature Magazine. Uh, <laughs> I'm I feel so, happy so fresh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nature is this, I mean, at first glance, it probably looks like an academic journal. And to some extent, it is. But what I like about Nature is it's Research, scientific research, not just on the environment, although the title would suggest that, but on science in general. Uh, it's actually really old. It goes back to 1869. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I, I mean, according to Wikipedia, it's the most cited interdisciplinary scientific journal in the world. What I like about it is it just has a lot of stories about scientific research, but also like social science. And it's often very understandable. Uh, they take the time and energy to sort of explain research. Um, it's, of course, very big online. Uh, and and that, that's, it's done very well with its online uh, stuff since the late 90s. I've been glancing at it. Um, and I was just looking at like the list of big breakthrough uh, research that was first Uh, published in nature before it became popular. And I'm not going to name them all, but like, you know, the human genome uh, mapping thing that was first reported on in a study published in nature. The first cloning, you remember Dolly the sheep, mm -hmm. uh, all the stuff about the ozone layer and the hole in the ozone layer in the 80s. That was nature. And if you go back, you could just find every major scientific uh, breakthrough in a way some of the first information about it for the public anyway, came through uh, nature magazine. So I really like it. Um, and it's not so much about international politics or conflict, but it is about international uh, uh, research. And uh, I like that stuff, especially in a world filled with facts that are kind of, he said, she said, I heard you heard here. We have, you know, hard research. And this is of course all found on nature.com. And yeah. there's also yeah. the printed magazine, Nature. Yeah, I've never actually held a copy in my hand, but uh, the online version is, is quite good and thankfully uh, quite open. Uh, you know, a lot of articles are there for sharing and reading. You don't need to buy some fancy schmancy uh, pub, um, uh, subscription, although I'm sure that is in there somewhere if you want. There's also a podcast on Ooh. Nature. I've um, never heard it. I, never I think I, I think I did, but been a while um i might try it yeah <laughs> i think it was quite reasonable background information on new scientific things happening yeah, yeah for me it's a text source but i am i'm interested uh in what 
multimedia they might do. Since the text uh, stuff is so good, I bet they could do good in, in other media as well. So add that to the list. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Mark, I think we're done now, aren't we? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Next week we'll be back and, and we'll be less in the business of reviewing big news, but we'll get more into some smaller stories. And, uh, you know, elections, they come and go. Uh, I don't know if people love or hate them. I, I, I find them pretty fascinating, I guess, uh, especially the ones we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So until next week, uh, thanks for all the feedback. Keep it coming uh, via the web, via Twitter. It's all very welcome, whatever your preferred method is. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Yes, and I hope we're <laughs> going to make it uh, with our so. next 50 episodes. Yes, here's to 50 more. Yes. Goodbye. Bye.